Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to this extra edition of the SITREP podcast from BFBS Radio. Chris Hunter had been in Iraq on Operation Telic for just four days when he was ambushed and shot. He was fortunate to only suffer a minor wound. In the months that followed, he disarmed numerous bombs, earning the Queen's Gallantry Medal for playing Russian roulette with his own life to safeguard the lives of others. Now, 20 years since the UK and US invaded, Chris is living in Iraq and still disposing bombs. He's part of a small team of British veterans working with the charity FSD to clear thousands of IEDs left by the Islamic State terror group. I've been talking to Chris about why he's returned, the war that he calls Britain's Vietnam, and life in Iraq two decades on from the invasion. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, everywhere you look, you see signs of progress. Um, You know, businesses are flourishing, children are at school. There's a sense of hope, but there's also um, a sense of uncertainty as well. Iraq has been a country that since the dawn of time has... uh, been the the victim, the subject of wars and conflicts. And I think, you know, when we came here 20 years ago, obviously that was our second Gulf War in recent times. There was the first Gulf War in the uh, the 90s before that. There was the Iran-Iraq War before that. And all those in recent history. And then, of course, you know, when we left and uh, and Daesh, ISIS came along. um, I think, you know, there's this sense of real hope, but no one ever really wants to hedge their bets that, uh, that it's going to be a, a, you know, a great outcome because they're always concerned about the next war, the next conflict, the next person who's going to try and fill the power vacuum. So mm-hmm. I, I always think of Iraq as, a, as very much a land of contrast, Kate. And you are speaking to me from Erbil. Uh, what about the rest of Iraq? W- would you as a British person be able to visit outside Kurdish areas? Yes. Yeah, so we um, live in the Kurdish area of Iraq, um, but each day we travel into federal Iraq um, we have to get all sorts of permissions to do that. That's really where our core business is. Uh, myself and my uh, my colleagues, all of whom are former British Armed Forces, we go into federal Iraq every day and we clear um, explosively contaminated areas that are littered with the estimated 300,000 remaining improvised explosive devices left behind by ISIS in their most recent campaign. So yeah, every day we go in there, uh, we do our business, and then we come back uh, to the relative safety of uh, of Kurdistan. And how and why did you take this on? Well, mine's a long story, and I'm not sure we've got long enough to, uh, to give you the long version, <laughs> but I think effectively 20 years ago, like most of the, uh, the young, um, naive members of the British Armed Forces, you know, we followed our orders, we were going to, uh, to war. Um, we were sold a lie about the weapons of mass destruction. Um, we soon realised, I think, that that wasn't the case. Um, but I think I speak for all former um, servicemen and women that that served in Iraq at that time. Um, Everybody tried to make a positive difference, you know, irrespective of the rights and wrongs and the, uh, the, you know, the cases belli. We all tried to make a a tangible difference to the lives of the Iraqi people. And I think all of us, you know, the the conflicts that the British Armed Forces have been involved in have almost always had the support of the British people and usually international law. Um, but I think this conflict was our Vietnam in many ways, you know, um, it didn't have the support of the uh, the population. So I suppose there was a, you know, in parts, there was wanting to try and make a difference and to try and put it right. And my colleagues and I, you know, we were blessed with, uh, you know, a skill set that enabled us to come back out to Iraq and actually help the Iraqi people and uh, and help them to, you know, live better lives and, and you know, ultimately a safer life um, by clearing those improvised explosive devices. And turning that clock back 20 years, can you just describe what it was like? Because it was pretty brutal, wasn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I mean, for me, um, I was actually commanding a specialist airborne bomb disposal unit a couple of weeks before the war started. We were given a warning order and told we were going to be parachuting into a divisional-sized Iraqi position, and we were going to be parachuting under fire. And my team and I, which was about half a dozen guys, were going to be going in and clearing lots and lots of improvised explosive devices um, that were attached to all these gossips in the oil fields. Hence, it was known operating certain death because, you know, even on an operational parachute jump, normally you're talking, you know, 50% injuries straight away. Then we were going to have to overcome this division of Iraqis, then find the IEDs. So Operation Certain Death, for some reason, it was cancelled at the very last minute um, and a, a normal ground offensive went in. So I didn't go in for another year. I went in in 2004. But even then, you know, we were sort of experienced operators. I'd, I'd been attached to the Special Forces for four years. So, you know, I was a fairly sort of adept soldier. But I don't think anything really prepared us for, for what we saw and, and what we experienced. And, and certainly four days into my own tour, my team and I were ambushed on the way back from dealing with some improvised explosive devices. Um, my number two was shot. I was shot. And we had to fight our way out. And it was the first time, you know, we'd actually been involved in close combat and had to engage with the enemy. So, yeah, it was a real baptism of fire, I think. And, uh, you know, it was a relentless tour. To what extent, Chris, has returning to Iraq to do the job you're doing now actually helped you deal with what must have been quite a shocking experience? Well, interestingly, you know, um, I mentioned that four days into our tour, we were ambushed. It was, you know, it was un it was unreal. It was the most surreal thing, the most terrifying experience as well, I think I've ever experienced during my entire armed forces career and afterwards. I think what was more terrifying was that we had to actually go back out the next day. So I got a, I got hit in the leg um, and uh, Dan, my number two, got hit in the shoulder and a bullet ricocheted off the inside of the vehicle and went into his shoulder. Um, but we were both, you know, fit for uh, fit to fight the next day. But we got a tasking the next day and we had to drive through the ambush area, which was really surreal um, and unnerving in equal measure. And I think after that, you know, we were very much hearts and minds, you know, almost the hippies of the military, if you like, in terms of being bomb disposal. You know, we were lovers, not fighters, I guess, to, to be a bit coy there. But I think when we went out, it was the switch change. You know, we didn't trust anybody at that point. We started looking at everybody as a hostile because I think that was our own coping mechanism, our own defense mechanism, if you like. The only way we were going to get through this. And bearing in mind, it was a four-month tour. We were only four days into it. Um, but I think fast forward 20 years, it's, it didn't really affect me at all. It wasn't even a consideration, I think. I think I'd already processed it, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, the day afterwards, yeah, it was a big consideration. 20 years later, um, you know, to be honest with you, I'd pretty much forgotten about it. And when you think about what you and your colleagues endured then, the 179 British lives lost, many more devastated, do you see in Iraq today anything good that's come out of it? I think probably the best thing that's come out of it, I see lots of good uh, is the short answer, Kate, but I think the best thing that's come out of it, um, when we went in in 2003, um, we thought we were saving the Iraqi people from the, you know, the, the barbaric clutches of Saddam and his regime. And we quickly realized that actually we were seen as an occupying force. Um, even the people that sort of came across as being friendly were always very cautious of us. Um, now it's an entirely different story. We're welcome with open arms. We're welcome into their houses. There are people that, you know, I work with that were from the Basra area when I was there that were potentially, you know, incredibly hostile towards the British Armed Forces, some of whom may have even been in the ambush that, you know, that, that targeted my, my colleagues and I. 
And we are actually really close friends now. We work together um, to clear Iraq of improvised explosive devices, explosive hazards. And, you know, we're not just work colleagues, we're mates. We get on really, really well. And I think the Iraqi people welcome us and we've sort of shared that plight as well. You know, they're, they're, um, the, the barbaric atrocities they suffered under ISIS, the fact that we helped them to, uh, to get through that and to ultimately overcome ISIS as well. And then since then, there's been a massive international footprint here supporting Iraq to get back on its feet. I think that's the main thing you see. You see this sort of, you know, welcoming you with open arms and they're really supportive and very, very friendly. Clearly, the bomb disposal work is dangerous, but away from that, do you feel safe in Iraq? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, I've spent my entire life in conflict zones. I know many of the BFBS audience are serving members of the armed forces, many are veterans as well. We're no strangers to conflict zones. I've worked in Africa. Um, I, I was in Libya during the fall of Gaddafi. I've been to Syria, various different conflict zones. And I think, um, yeah, working here, you sort of, there's always an inherent degree of risk. But I think, you know, by the time you've got to this stage, this long in the tooth, everything's calculated risk, isn't it? We don't do anything that's foolhardy. We don't do anything that's stupid. You know, we've got a good sort of intelligence and information support network as well. And of course, because we're so close to our Iraqi colleagues, their, their intelligence is better than anything we could ever produce. You know, their word of mouth intelligence, they know something's happening even before it reaches, you know, our intelligence community. So they'll tell us what's going on and we make it, you know, an informed judgment. And yeah, so far, so good. And Chris, you work with a team who are all ex-military. How many of them are Iraq veterans? Um, so I think probably all of us are Iraq veterans at one stage or another. And probably half of them were actually there in 2003 and went in with the main sort of force. So, um, you know, we all have an affinity with Iraq. And, and interestingly, you know, we, we don't just... Um, train the miners, we train operators as well. So we're, you know, we're trying to train guys to be at the same level of knowledge and expertise as us. And, uh, you know, it's very much, I think sometimes when you see NGOs, when you see these sort of uh, non-governmental organizations, charities, the aid sector, sometimes there's very much a them and us, you know, there's the mm -hmm. local nationals and there's the internationals. We're very much, you know, um, equals. And uh, we just make sure that we train them to do as much as we can so that we can all, you know, do as much together and succeed as much as we possibly can. And how much do you actually talk about your experiences of the Iraq war? With the, with the local nationals? or No, uh, with, with the people you work, the ex-military people you work with. Yeah. Well, I think, actually, both, to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. When we, when we talk to the Iraqis, that's when it's most interesting because uh, they were on one side or the other. They were pro-Saddam or anti-Saddam. When life's good, they're, uh, they're really happy. When life's bad or, uh, you know, there's a few bit of political turmoil or... Yeah, there's some sort of issue, protest, whatever. And they always say it was better under Saddam, you know, um, it changes from week to week. But um, I mean, we're obviously a little bit diplomatic when we talk to them about our experiences. But I think, you know, they realise that, uh, especially I think the British Armed Forces, we've always had this sense of fairness. And, you know, even if they were potentially an enemy, they were an enemy because they were on the opposing side, not because we hated them as people, you know. And because we treated them with respect and dignity, that respect was sort of reciprocated. So, yeah, when we talk about it, it's almost done in a, in a you know, a banter type way. Um, we joke about things rather than sort of get too heavy and deep about it. And it's the same, I think, with the, you know, my international colleagues, the, uh, the guys that are in the British forces. 
Um, the IS terror group was able to grow and take huge swathes of Iraq in the chaos after the US and the UK left. Do you and do the Iraqi people you talk to see the bombs you're clearing as part of that legacy of the invasion 20 years ago? How do they talk about it? No, I think um, there's a lot of talk about ISIS being created as a result of the uh, the invasion. And I mean, I think, yes, of course, there's always a degree of butterfly effect, isn't there? You know, the law of unintended consequences, I guess. I think ISIS was largely made up of people who are either completely misinformed and, and duped. That was the main body of them. And then a large, um, you know, quantity of very, very evil, barbaric, sadistic people. A lot of criminals, you know, as well um, uh, made up made up their ranks. And I think, you know, it's well documented that there were senior members of the Ba'ath Party um, took positions of power within ISIS when it was created and certainly capitalised on the, uh, the the dissent within Iraq and uh, and Syria at the time. Um, but I think the way that they uh, they conducted themselves the uh, um, and the, the sort of level of hypocrisy that was exposed during their, their tenure people very quickly realized that they were fake, that they were evil, that they were hypocrites. And, you know, the one thing you see here all the time, we may have different languages, we may have, you know, um, different cultures, but actually we pretty much all want the same thing. You know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We want food, we want shelter, we want to bring up our kids. We love our families. You know, we want to live in a social environment. We want an education, ideally have a little holiday once a year if we can do. You know, we're, we're pretty much exactly the same people. So I think we share the same sense of right and wrong, irrespective of our cultures. And Chris, how, how do Iraqis uh, respond to you, given the fact that when you were deployed to Iraq, you had no choice during the war, and now you've chosen to come to Iraq now that you're a veteran? I think half of them think we're bonkers. <laughs> and then, uh, the, the, no, the majority of them, I think they really appreciate it. Um, you tend to find in the sort of, you know, the aid sector, there are those people that want to give it a go and see it as a bit of a romantic adventure. And they come out for what we call a rotation. Rotations are typically sort of three months, four months, something like that. And they realize it's not for them. And they go back and they've got some good stories to tell and that's it. And then you've got the people that come out and actually they quite enjoy it. And people do it for different reasons. There are commercial organizations that work in hostile environments that get paid, you know, fairly decent sums of money. And many of those people are just about the money, not all of them. Some of them, it's completely altruistic. But I think in the humanitarian aid sector, it's very much an altruistic thing. You know, you actually want to make a difference. And even if you're joining and you're not quite sure why you want to join, you want to give it a sort of suck and see, you very quickly realize that, you know, it's a, a very gratifying existence. It's very, very rewarding. When I left the military, um, I thought once you left the military, you know, to be successful, you had to go and, you know, make some money and uh, make a name for yourself and all that sort of stuff. Um, I wrote a couple of books and, uh, and and made made a few quid, lost a whole lot, you know, made some bad life decisions. Um, I work for an aid organization now, don't get paid a great deal of money, but I don't think I've ever been as rich as a human being, you know, because that sort of having that purpose every day, the same purpose we all had when we were in the military, you know, there's nothing that can equate to that. Um, the sense of gratification of being able to do something where you genuinely know you're making a difference. Um, the camaraderie that we all had in the military that people say they miss when they leave the military, we still, you know, are blessed to have that with our, with our work colleagues. So I think, you know, the Iraqi people, they see that 
Um, they see that we genuinely love what we do. They see that we genuinely love being here. And they also see that, you know, we genuinely love them as human beings. You know, to us, they're, they're our best mates and they're members of our family. You know, all families are dysfunctional, obviously, and you have your ups and downs, your good days, your bad days. But ultimately, it's a constant, isn't it? And I think, you know, they realise that. And, uh, and, and that sort of affection and respect is definitely reciprocated. How long do you think you'll be working in Iraq clearing bombs? Well, that's a great question, Kate. I mean, there's sort of two main factors at the moment. When, when we did a study in 2018 across the humanitarian demining sector, it was assessed that there were around half a million improvised explosive devices just left by Daesh alone. And it was going to take 10 years to clear those, um, you know, working on about 50,000 a year with all the demining organisations. Then um, they looked at all of the legacy munitions. So everything from the Iran-Iraq war, Gulf War One, Gulf War Two, et cetera, et cetera. They reckon that would be at least 25 years just to clear those alone as well. Um, so at the moment, just with the Daesh IEDs, we've got at least 300,000 that we know of. We're finding new hazard areas all the time as well. So that number's increasing. So just for the IEDs, you know, it's going to be a minimum of, you know, another sort of eight, 10 years, I'd say. Um, wow. Explosive ordnance, you know, potentially another 20, 20 years. But the issue is that rightly, you know, the focus has, uh, um, has has moved internationally towards Ukraine. And I think with that comes a focus in donor funding as well. The people that generously donate the, uh, the funds that are required to sustain these humanitarian organizations. And coupled with that, I think the Iraqi government has published some very, very sort of promising figures and statistics in terms of their oil revenues and things like that. Um, and that's great to see the countries advancing and progressing. The downside, of course, is that international donors are like, well, if you're earning, you know, 100 billion in oil revenue this year, then you don't need us to be giving you money when we can be donating it to Ukraine. So I think we're going to see a shift. So the answer is I'd stay for as long as I could. The reality is, you know, if the donor funding dries up, then uh, there'll be no more NGOs here and, you know, we'll go to the next war zone, which will probably be Ukraine, I guess. Right. And if you were able to describe what your legacy, your personal legacy of the Iraq war was, what would that be? Well, I think, I guess my own legacy is the same as every other member of the British Armed Forces. You know, we came, we saw, we did our best. Um, my team and I, we were lucky. We had a job that was effectively a humanitarian job within the armed forces. So, you know, when you get people of certain persuasions that decide that all members of the armed forces are fascist baby murderers, um, then I guess at least they're less likely to accuse you of that when you're working in bomb disposal, you know? Um, but I think the reality is all of us try to make a difference. We try to um, make the lives better to the, for the Iraqi people in whatever small way we could. And I think now, of course, coming back out here, you know, we all feel very blessed that we have a skill set where we can continue that work at least and, uh, you know, and try to make a difference, you know, for the good. Or, or you know. my, my, my wife always says, you know, do you want to contribute towards the problem or the solution? So at least out here, we're contributing towards a solution, I think. Chris Hunter, great to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. This is Sidrath.